Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Fagro Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Huntington Ingalls Industries Unmanned Systems Strategy and takeaways from day one of the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium. But first, joining us is my good friend, Ambassador Link Bloomfield, Chairman Emeritus of the Stimson Center Think Tank, who served in five presidential administrations at the White House, the Pentagon, and at the State Department. Link, it's always an honor and pleasure having you back on the program. Thank you, Vago. My pleasure. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And this week and over the coming weeks, we are going to be covering the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium in Northern Virginia, where our coverage is sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and Raytheon Technologies. Tune in to our Cavus Ships podcast hosted by uh, Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello for a daily deep dive into the show with gavel to gavel coverage. Uh, don't miss it. Uh, Link, uh, thanks very much for joining us. And I um, wanted to get your take uh, on the negotiations between uh, the United States and Russia over uh, Moscow's uh, buildup of some 100,000 troops uh, on the Ukraine uh, border. And I should also say in Ukraine and occupied Ukraine. Um, not the first time the international community has had to negotiate with Vladimir Putin uh, at the at the at the barrel of a gun. Uh, if, if, if you will, Wendy Sherman and obviously uh, Sergei Lavrov uh, met in Geneva for, for two days. Uh, the NATO-Russia Council is going to meet tomorrow. Um, here we are back sort of Cold War-like where the United States and Russia are discussing matters, European or Ukrainian, even though we've, we're telling everybody that we're back. What is it that we need to be you know, after, the, after those talks were concluded on Sunday and Monday, I should point out that the United States has said, you know, we, we have no breakthroughs, but we've made progress. The Russians are putting a little bit more positive spin on it. Obviously, absurd demands for Moscow at the end of last year, right? No more nations, no more expansion of NATO, whole bunch of other issues. What is it that we need to be getting out of these talks? And what's your view of, of the progress made to date or not? And whether it ultimately matters, right? Putin's going to do whatever Putin wants to do, no matter what. Well, uh, thanks, Vago. I've heard uh, senior military commanders and former U.S. ambassadors and people who have dealt much more day-to-day at high levels with Russia under Putin um, say that his goals are are strategic, that he, he's not looking for some short-term tactical gain. Uh, he wants to break up NATO. He wants to weaken the United States. He wants to create a, a sphere of influence and and to uh, exercise his army, which has gotten stronger in recent years, even though the Russian economy is weak. Um, and so uh, I, I take your point that there, there's, there may be an appearance issue that Russia has put a gun to the head of the West and brought us to the table. That could be one interpretation. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, that's what a lot of countries have been doing. Iran has, you know, pushed its nuclear program and gotten us to the table. Uh, North Korea pushed its missile and nuclear program and got President Trump to go to Asia three times. Uh, that there is, I think, a, a good excuse for engaging in face-to-face discussions. Look, we met with the Tariq Aziz in Geneva before driving the Iraqi army out of Kuwait under Saddam Hussein. Uh, so you, there's no shame in 
having talks. I do think that these kind of sub-cabinet uh, talks where you have many members uh, of the bureaucracy represented are not going to be the place where a breakthrough happens. Um, it's actually uh, a place that where you advertise your positions. And I think that arguably uh, can help the Western side because in the West, you have democratic governments where uh, the press is reporting on everything. The populations are listening. The legislatures are paying attention. And so the more you have day-to-day sort of outcomes from these talks that say, well, the Russian demands are excessive and unrealistic, and we would never want to do that. That would be uh, undercutting the sovereignty and security of of, of Europe. Uh, That tends, I think, if it's done right, uh, to cement uh, a more a sense of solidarity and uh, kind of a, a resistance uh, to what Russia is trying to do, which wouldn't happen if you never had these meetings. So I think that's the purpose they serve if it's done well. And I think that if you listen to President Biden and then Secretary Blinken, um, their messaging has been very strong uh, that, that this can go one of two ways. Uh, But if Russia commits more aggression against Ukraine, um, a lot of bad things can happen. And that's where I think the press reporting uh, builds consensus in these legislatures uh, and in the NATO member states that have to agree to all these things. Do are they willing to impose much tougher economic sanctions that would that would really squeeze Putin and some of his inner circle? Are they willing uh, to provide weapons to Ukraine? Are they willing to push uh, the enlargement of NATO with other members? We've heard talk about Sweden and Finland. Um, And uh, are they willing to put sanctions on Nord Stream 2, this pipeline into Germany uh, that that evades the pipes through Ukraine uh, from Russia? Uh, And I think that the answer to those questions is unknown, but it's more likely to be yes because of all of the commotion surrounding uh, the diplomacy this week in Europe. So what's the end point here, uh, Link? Where do we need to arrive with the Russians, right? They have troops massed. They want to create a land corridor uh, to uh, Crimea from occupied uh, Ukraine, even though they built a multi-billion dollar bridge uh, across that uh, strait, right? I mean, so there is a connection there anyway. Um, wh- where does the international, what, what does the international community need to be doing to substantively deter the Russians? Because it seems like every time we ratchet things up, whether it's, you know, the swift I don't think we should be using SWIFT because that is supposed to be a neutral, uh, it's, it's supposed to be a neutral connective uh, technology, right? I mean, it shouldn't be politicized. That's even in the charter of the organization. Ultimately, what's the right way to affect Russia and deal with Russia? Because Russia keeps contriving circumstances, almost begging punishment, and yet it doesn't really seem to be weakening uh, Putin. In fact, Putin has... Uh, executed his strategy to reassert Russian domination, whether it's in the Caucasus in the wake of the uh, war uh, between Armenia, uh, Turkey, Azerbaijan, uh, and Israel, in in fairness, uh, or in Belarus, or in Kazakhstan just recently. So uh, the way I look at this, Vago, not being, uh, not claiming to be a Russia or NATO specialist, but more kind of a a worldwide (laughs) geopolitical observer, uh, is 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 to first of all take you know the here and now and the politics out of it. Uh, the, there's two trajectories that have been going in parallel. One is sort of what's happened to Russia since the fall of 
Soviet Union, and two is what have we done about it? And in both cases, I think there are important lessons learned. Uh, the Russians, uh, you know, of course, collapsed. And uh, I've just been reading some memoirs and books about what, what happened on the inside economically, where they tried to give vouchers to everyone under Yeltsin the, uh, as to the state assets, but they were all bundled together. And that led to concentrations of wealth and oligarchs. And so it's kind of ironic that this communist society for 70 years suddenly became one of the most unequal economic, uh, you know, examples in the world with super rich and then desperately poor uh, in Russia. Uh, and Putin hasn't tried to change that. He basically sided with the circle of uh, essentially the intelligence people and the rich people. And that's, he's, he's gone with that. Since 2008, uh, he's, been, uh, he's, he's been pushing uh, a, an agenda, which I don't think we connected the dots well enough. Uh, the Georgia uh, if you will, conflict where he ended up with uh, access to the Black Sea and territories in the Western Georgia. Uh, he held the Olympics in Sochi. People didn't seem to realize how much of a geopolitical play that was. He spent $50 billion putting, you know, blankets on the snow fields the year before so that they could credibly hold a Winter Olympics. Why did he do that? You had Xi Jinping and others sitting in the, in the stadium while he basically was saying, this is mine. Here I am. And then you know, they took Crimea in 2014, grabbed Sevastopol and on down to the Mediterranean and into Syria with the intervention. If you connect all those dots, you can see why uh, he uh, thinks that he has a play with the Russian speaking people in Ukraine. Uh, on the other hand, there has been, uh, you know, the poor people in Russia are mirrored by uh, poor Russian speaking people in other countries. You saw what happened in Ukraine in 2014, where a corrupt leader, Yanukovych, the pro-Russian, was driven out in the protests. Uh, and the same thing happened in Belarus, where Lukashenko faced an uprising in the streets and the Russians have you know, come to his side. And now with Kazakhstan, with Tokayev, the street is in revolt. And I think Putin didn't go there out of opportunism. He went there because the Chinese uh, could have gone in first. They, after all, have been buying farmland in, in Kazakhstan and, and until recently because the law was passed to stop it. But, the, but China is Kazakhstan's largest uh, export destination for energy. And Putin thought, uh, he, I think Putin felt he had to go in first. So he's basically trying to chase not only in Ukraine, Belarus and Kazakhstan, the, the revolt of the people. He's facing the same thing at home. Uh, if you look at uh, you know, at, 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 the, at the, the, the protests that we've seen all across Russia uh, and Navalny being jailed. Uh, so, uh, so he's acting, I think, out of some weakness. Uh, the American side, I mean, I, I think to keep this non-political, we go back to the, the George W. Bush administration where I served, even the Clinton administration before that, what was the plan with Russia? Under, and, and when Putin took over, uh, you know, what how do we find a modus vivendi uh, in Europe where Europe becomes united, stable, free, and Russia has a, a decent place in Europe? Uh, and, and it, you know, the Germans certainly believed in that vision. Um, and I, I think that the, the partnership for peace, the, the enlargement of NATO sort of rolled along. We took over the Warsaw Pact states. I negotiated with the Russians on shoulder fired missiles. And their concern, I'll tell you what it was, they, they were concerned that, uh, that we, would, we would find that SA-7s were being made in factories in, in, in the Warsaw Pact states. And, uh, and, 
and they wanted to make sure that <laughs> that their own industries were not undercut by people who had the same blueprints in Eastern Europe. And so I said, uh, uh, we'll make that deal, but only if uh, uh, if we can be assured that you're not going, that if we stop one of our new allies in, in, in the Warsaw, former Warsaw Pact, and, and, and then we wake up and find that the Russians are selling into these markets in the third world with shoulder-fired missiles, there's no deal. So we, we suspended the talks, and I got a phone call from a former three-star in the Red Army who said, um, this is from Putin, you have a deal. And Condi Rice signed that in, in uh, Bratislava in early uh, 2005. Um, the point being, uh, there, there were grounds for agreement, but the Russians serially violated the CFE agreement, they violated the INF agreement, they violated the Minsk uh, protocols that were agreed in 2014 and Minsk II, which were supposed to create a ceasefire, withdrawal of heavy weapons, all these things. Putin did not uh, abide by any of these agreements. And here we are. Uh, so with kind of a no strategic vision of where, what the future could be with Russia. And now, you know, they're using gray warfare against us um, and meddling in our elections, et cetera. Um, and it's not a good situation. So it's all come to a head. And I think uh, the Biden team doesn't have a huge amount of, uh, of tools at its disposal, but one of them is unity of, of, of policy. So they've really been knitting together public opinion in, in, uh, in Europe. And you see Ukraine itself, uh, countries like Romania, Poland, they're very nervous that something's gonna be traded away with Russia to settle this. That's not gonna happen. And I, I think there's no chance that that would happen. So Putin, I think the tables have turned a little bit against him. He really doesn't want to be trapped uh, in, a, in an economic sanctions net as badly as Iran was in recent years. Um, and he doesn't want weapons to come into Ukraine. This whole thing could flip on him. No one wants a war. Well, but I do think that uh, that he's, you know, the tide is somewhat turned against him since he thought this was such an easy get in eastern Ukraine. It's not. Oh, and let me, um, we've got about 30 seconds uh, left. Uh, and so that was where I was going to uh, try to take you. Is this time for us to sort of double down, expand Magnitsky, uh, right? Because uh, there's a tendency of thinking that he's very, very clever and he's getting what he wants. But ultimately, all he's doing, a little bit like China, is organizing the entire planet against him, um, right? He uh, uh, dissolved memory. He's cracked down at home. That's not necessarily going over that well with uh, the Russian population uh, because, you know, and there is there is more pressure that we can exert on him. Is this something that is actually organizing the world against him that actually accentuates his weakness and puts him right? And, and so if he, if he is in a vulnerable position, let me put it this way, uh, Link, in the 30 seconds we've got left, what's the kind of pressure we need to exert on him? For it to really matter, is it as Vladimir Karamurza uh, points out to Magnitsky the hell out of the oligarchs that will can then start influencing Putin, right? Because one guy alone does not control the country. There, there's, well, there are ways of getting to him that can make it very painful or much more painful. Well, I, well, I agree that these tools are painful for him. I, the answer, my my view is that we 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 have very tough tactical response right now, so that so that the pain points are immediate. They're real. Uh, they're not military necessarily, although there may be more military deterrence. So tactically, very tough. But we also have to have a strategy that points to something better for him, for us, for Europe. Nobody wants to be spending their last nickel 
on uh, on 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 a war when they could be, uh, you know, transforming into a, a more peaceful and united Europe. And so I think there has to we we have to sort of face up to the fact that we haven't had a coherent Russia strategy since the fall of the Soviet Union, and that is a longer discussion. But right now, you know, m- bad behavior should be punished. The flag should be thrown. The penalty should be imposed. It should hurt. Shouldn't be capricious. It should be deserved. But but we've got to call him out on all the gray warfare uh, and and the and the non-compliance with his agreements. It has to, we have to hold a mirror up to it and make sure that everyone inside Russia knows that uh, you know his legitimacy, uh, the, our, the world's respect for him, and all of that are are in question because of his decisions. Link, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much, and already looking forward to having you back on to have a deeper conversation about what that strategy looks like. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dago. Take care. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. And joining us now is Tom Reynolds, a retired uh, United States Navy commander and explosive ordnance disposal uh, officer. Uh, he started his career as a surface warrior, hence uh, a nice little tie-in to SNA. He is a senior director uh, for business development uh, at Huntington Engels Industries Technical Solutions Unit, where he focuses on unmanned systems. Tom, thanks very, very much for joining us. Hey, and thanks for having me there, Vago. It was a great hearing from you. Thanks very much for spending time with reporters uh, this morning. And it's been fascinating watching the transformation of Huntington Ingalls Industries. I should point out to our audience, uh, HII is sponsoring our coverage uh, at SNA, both for this program, as well as uh, the Cava Ships uh, program. Raytheon Technologies is our other sponsor for SNA coverage. Um, Tom, it's been fascinating watching the transformation of Huntington Ingalls Industries under your CEO, uh, Mike Petters. He's been kind enough to join us over the years and map out this uh, this fascinating unmanned systems growth that the company has had. Alliant uh, was uh, one of the largest elements of, of, of that acquisition. Um, you guys also had a transaction uh, since uh, that really positions you at a time when the Navy is increasing its focus on unmanned systems. Obviously, Project Overmatch is the CNO's blueprint for an unmanned future. Talk to us a little bit about uh, what you guys uh, are featuring here uh, at this show, right? I mean, you have the latest generation of Remus. You guys are working on Orca. Talk to us a little bit about what you have uh, uh, on display there at SNA for the audience. Yeah, so we have, uh, you know, downstairs here, the Remus 300, which is our third generation of unmanned underwater vehicle. Um, we've been uh, making unmanned underwater vehicles, uh, you know, for uh, the last, you know, uh, or really since since the turn of the century, uh, you know, here, and uh, um, have... Uh, delivered to the U.S. Navy, really our first generation of vehicles in the Mark 18 program and the Razorback program. Uh, we sent, we then uh, built a, a second generation, which was the new generation Remus 100. And then the new, this newest uh, vehicle, the Remus 300, really gets to the core of what the Navy is looking for. And that's a modular, you know, open architecture, uh, both with software and with hardware. And we're adding some cybersecurity features to it for our, for our defense uh, you know, customers. Um, and the vehicles are, are uh, you know, really here because one of the areas that uh, we believe can, can, we can help the, the surface, uh, you know, Navy is adding another dimension to uh, the existing inventory of, of ships without adding, you know, a, a large logistics footprint or requiring much training, you know, new training for sailors. So a, a Remus 300 is man portable. Um, and, and while, you know, for instance, a destroyer will, 
have a lot of access and, and visibility out for miles of, uh, you know, of airspace and can deploy a helicopter. Uh, an unmanned underwater vehicle can add another dimension uh, to, uh, you know, to the warfighting, to the warfighting capability uh, of that, of that vessel uh, by, by giving, you know, that, the, you know, the commander of that, uh, you know, vessel uh, some insight on into uh, waterways he's entering, potential minefields uh, around, around him, uh, or just, uh, you know, taking some measurements of what the environmental conditions are, which would help him tune his uh, sonar. And, and you guys obviously are working on a new, uh, you, you, you're uh, going to be very soon inaugurating your uh, technical center of excellence in Hampton, uh, in uh, Hampton, Virginia. Um, you guys also are working on the ORCA program. Bring the audience up to speed on that. That's the very large unmanned underwater vehicle. Uh, Boeing is the prime contractor, but uh, you guys are integral to helping make that magic uh, happen. Yes. Where are you on that program? Yeah, so we, we expect to have the, uh, the official opening ceremony uh, here in March for what we're calling our Unmanned Systems Center of Excellence. It's uh, uh, about 155,000 square feet of, uh, of, of space that's climate controlled, um, uh, 30 ton and 50 ton uh, cranes in, in the overhead to, uh, to help us um, handle uh, these, these large you know, un unmanned uh, you know, systems. And we also have the ability to expand the space. So we're not limited to 155,000 square feet. Uh, yes, currently under, under, you know, in support of Boeing under contract, we're building uh, five of the Orca, you know, XLUVs. We've already shipped uh, one to uh, Boeing, which will be going in the water later on this year. And we have uh, four more that are being uh, fabricated at our, at our facility. Um, I'll also add that, that, uh, you know, the facility is, is also ready to support unmanned surface vessels as well. And, and we have some plans to start uh, doing some of the systems integration of, uh, of sensors and autonomy onto a, uh, an unmanned service vessel program. There were, there were two fascinating things uh, that you that you said a lot of interesting things, Tom, but there were two things that sort of jumped out at me, right? At a, at a time when the Navy is looking for uh, open architecture and commercial systems, that's what it is you guys are trying to bring to uh, the, the customer. Um, but a lot of that, the most important element of that is bringing those sort of cutting edge commercial technologies uh, to uh, the Navy customer. And the second thing you, you mentioned that was fascinating was how you guys can actually use uh, some of the artificial uh, intelligence uh, and, and decision-making technology that you guys have developed to actually help manned platforms, right? I mean, we saw in the collisions of uh, the Fitzgerald and the McCain, unfortunately, the human team was sort of overloaded and, and could have probably used some sort of external help. I know that some of these decision-making functions uh, have been out there for a while, right? Littoral Combat Ship has a couple uh, of, of capabilities there, which the Navy has not chosen to exercise. Talk to us about bringing commercial, you know, and you also mentioned the importance of developing a newer generation of, of, of propulsion machinery for surface ships that can be more automated, uh, right? Because at the end of the day, as Elaine Luria, the congresswoman from the Tidewater uh, points out, right, somebody has to do the unglamorous job of cleaning the strainers out uh, on, a, on a surface surface ship. What are some of the most interesting commercial technologies that you think are the most applicable, whether to the unmanned side of the business or, or in making manned platforms better, more reliable, more resilient, uh, more capable? So um, a, lot, a lot to un unpack there, Vago. Let me, let me start off with uh, the, uh, the concept of the, the unmanned maritime autonomy architecture and, and how uh, having a more modular 
you know, design not only benefits our customer, the U.S. Navy, but actually also benefits us, you know, as a designer and, and, and manufacturer of unmanned systems. So, um, you know, you can take any, any system, any machine, and you can divide it up into functions. Um, what the, the Navy would like and we're happy, you know, for them to have is they want to own what those interfaces are. And um, what goes behind those interface, inter interfaces can remain the intellectual property of whoever develops them. So that would encourage commercial companies uh, to develop a product and then uh, rest assured that they can um, sell it into the U.S. Uh, government while keeping their intellectual property. A lot of times the government will requ require uh, government data rights or government purpose rights and eventually, you know, get more of that intellectual property than a commercial company would, would like to see. So, so UMAA simply creates those interfaces, which allows the commercial company to hold on to that intellectual property. It also creates a situation where one section of the vehicle or the system can be developed without breaking the other parts of the system. A lot of times, right. if you have a very tightly integrated uh, system, you make one change to one section, and then there's a domino effect. Uh, although we lose a little bit of space when it comes to modularity, uh, and there is a little bit more cost in the in the in the initial side of things. Um, in the long run, you end up with a system that um, you know can avoid obsolescence issues, and can also be tailored to uh, you know new ideas, uh, you know, it, it, or or a specific need of an organization. You can have a a core product serve uh, one basic you know, premise here, one basic mission, and then somebody else now develops a new payload or a new technology that can be more uh, readily integrated, you know, onto this vehicle. So um, you don't need to swing for the fences in your first go. You can develop a more basic unmanned platform, which then can be developed, you know, later on to meet what the Navy would really like uh, as it gains confidence. So, um, and, that, and that is a, you know, so when we talk about commercial technology, I'd say um, having that kind of a, an open architecture uh, framework where a commercial business can still feel that its intellectual property is protected and not forced to give it, a, give it away, as long as it meets those interface standards, will encourage that development. Um, There's so many commercial developments out there, it'd be tough to, to list them all. But, but as you can see, you know, with, with all things electronic, stuff starts to get smaller and smaller. And with the new generation Remus 300, we really take advantage of that. We have a better inertial navigation system, better sonar, uh, better core electronics, better propulsion, all taking advantage of what's just happening uh, in the commercial space as, as things get smaller and more efficient, yet remain just as effective as their larger uh, predecessors. Um, um, yeah. I, what, what I was gonna ask you, right, a, a key part of uh, the company's strategy is to expand also, right? Expand that foot, take, take some of these naval technologies and then expand the footprint in Army and even Air Force, right? I mean, I think that uh, folks don't recognize, but technical services landed a billion dollar United States Air Force contract, uh, which had a tendency of surprising folks and yet put you guys on the map in, in sort of a big way. What are, yeah. what's the roadmap, Tom, that takes some of these uh, naval capabilities and helps you grow your footprint uh, in the land and air domains uh, where you guys are not as much of a household name, but want to be. Yeah. So I guess, you know, at its core, you know, software, you know, ones and zeros don't really recognize whether they're in the water or in the air or on the ground. 
um, I think engineers would would take some objection to, to what I just said. But but basically, when you have a an, a an unmanned you know operating system, you know like we have, it is that that product is really responding to whatever sensors are integrated onto it, sending commands to whatever um, you know arms or fins or, or whatever it, it has. The, the 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 architecture, the 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 thought process that goes into that design, you know, can be the same. And so while we are an end-to-end designer and manufacturer of unmanned underwater vehicles, um, for when it comes to, you know, smaller, uh, you say USVs, smaller than what Newport News or Ingalls, you know, makes, uh, most likely we're a partner, you know, to someone else where we can integrate our autonomy and do some systems integration. Same thing with when it comes to the unmanned, unmanned ground vehicles or air vehicles. Uh, having an open architecture system means you can provide the full architecture, you can provide the operating system, or you can just provide a, uh, a software application that just gets added onto it. For instance, um, we've gone a long way in in uh, multi-agent control autonomy, which basically you know is uh, several vehicles you know working collaboratively together. So we may find a partner on the ground side that already has you know, the, their team and they already has their problem solved with what they want to do with the core, you know, vehicle autonomy. Uh, but now we have a product that can uh, be, be hung on to that to have it uh, more easily integrate with other ground vehicles, or we can provide, you know, the, the whole thing. So basically you have a menu and you have a scale of, of, do you want to just have a little product? Do you want to do autonomy integration? Do you want to do systems integration? Or do you need, you know, or do we want to do the whole end-to-end manufacturing? And I, th- I think it'll come down to, uh, you know, some basic business decisions uh, with our customer and with our partner about whatever the best, uh, you know, what the best business case is. Um, let me ask you one last culture change question, right? You're a proud graduate of the United States Naval Academy. Uh, and, and so, you know, you know naval culture, you spent a career uh, in it. Um, the, the Navy can be very, very innovative, but also can be very, very uh, conservative uh, about uh, how to use uh, emerging and evolving capabilities. And some of it is a very pragmatic thing, right? You still have to clean the strainer. I may want unmanned uh, surface vessels. That's kind of hard to do right now, given the state uh, of the maintenance intensive nature of ship driving, uh, for example. Similarly, augmentation on a bridge or reliance on unmanned systems. What's, what's the right virtuous cycle that's being created? Because you and your colleagues uh, come from a naval background. Your CEO uh, is a graduate of the United States Naval Academy and, and was a submariner, and as is a, a large part of the leadership role. Kirk Donald uh, was a former uh, naval reactor, uh, na- naval reactors, and he's the chairman of the company. How, how are you guys working with the customer to drive the cultural change aspects of this to maximize the adoption of the capability and the technology? Because we are at the cusp of a revolution. You're bringing this to the Navy. The question is how you both mutually benefit from this, right? In terms yeah, of driving so, that cultural change. Yeah. So I guess let me just start with, with this. So my background was as an EOD officer. I, I spent some time um, you know, in, in combat and some time using un- unmanned systems and the speed of innovation when you're, when you're at war, you know, can be, can be faster. I will say though, that whether you're in, whether you are in uniform or not, um, doing the right thing is good business. And the culture of Huntington Ingalls has a lot less to do with selling, uh, and much more to do with just solving, you know, problems and, and, 
making sure our warfighters are taken care of. Um, while I no longer have uh, the authority that I, I used to, to have, I think uh, I still feel the responsibility and I still feel that that's the culture of, of Huntington Ingalls. We feel responsible for the men and women that, uh, you know, go on board our vessels and, you know, go into harm's way. So I, I think that that culture of trust and, and you know, it has to be there first for, for, the, for anyone in uniform to, uh, to start to think, okay, how am I going to risk my life, um, you know, trusting, you know, this new technology? Nothing uh, hurts morale more than being in a, you know, in a gunfight and your weapon jamming. I can tell you, you know, firsthand that, 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 uh, that, that, that's a little come to Jesus moment there. When um, you, when we have this new technology and we put it in the hands of sailors, um, we have to feel like we're going to be right alongside them and taking risks with them. So um, I, I think, and we've seen this both in, within the Pentagon and both on, on, on the Hill, that there has been some language about um, uh, land-based testing, the use of digital twin, the use of, uh, you know, uh, modeling and simulation to start to vet and prove uh, some of this technology. In fact, one uh, area that I know uh, PEO Unmanned Systems is really looking at is something called RAIL, the, the Rapid Autonomy Integration Lab. And it just, it's, it's basically a, uh, a digital twin of, of whatever unmanned system is out there. And instead of just, uh, you know, upgrading the vehicles that are downrange, we can um, use this lab to insert new technology and, and run it through the ringer to make sure, make sure it works. Um, I think that when it comes to smaller vehicles and smaller unmanned systems, um, I think there is already a pretty, pretty good acceptance uh, for using them as tools, using them as, as uh, something that uh, if they get destroyed, you know, and a, and a sailor or a soldier, you know, lives, you know, at that machine's expense, you know, nobody cares. Um, and it's served good use. When it comes to these larger uh, systems, like the L LUSV or the XLUUV, uh, there's still quite a bit uh, to go there when it comes to uh, the endurance and the, the, you know more on the machinery side uh, of making sure that the HMNE can survive you know those 30, 60, 90 day you know deployments. And and we need them. I mean our our Navy, our nation fights in away games. Uh, we need to have uh, unmanned systems that support crossing the oceans, you know, that, that they, they cross. Um, in the meantime, I'm, what I'm hopeful for is that the Navy can learn still a lot more just by uh, exercising the vehicles that they have out in Port Wanimi. Um, there's the, uh, you know, the ghost fleet, you know, is out there. Several uh, USVs and UUVs are out there. So there's a lot, a lot of lessons that can be learned from, from them and not just operational, but how do you sustain them? And then, uh, and then also downrange, I do think that the smaller, more tradable, um, you know, unmanned systems, systems as tools uh, are used and, and can be used more, you know, downrange. Tom, thanks very much for joining us. Absolute pleasure having you on the program. Uh, Fairwinds following seas and look forward to staying in touch and certainly visiting uh, you guys in March when you unveil the new center. Thanks very much. Great. Thank you, Vega. And joining us now for an after action of day one of the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium is Brian Clark, a retired United States Navy commander who is now with the Hudson Institute uh, think tank. Brian, thanks very much for joining us, especially so late in the day. Thank you, Valco. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. 
Uh, it's absolutely great having you back on. I wouldn't, man I wouldn't imagine a, a uh, conversation about naval affairs and naval matters without having you uh, aboard. Uh, very, very action-packed uh, day one uh, happening in person uh, there in Northern uh, Virginia. A lot of interesting threads. Uh, threads. Uh, we heard from uh, Vice Admiral Kitchener, uh, the Naval Surface Forces Commander. We heard from Admiral Schleiss, uh, requirements uh, on OPNAV. And we also heard from uh, Brigadier General uh, Odom, the N-95. And, and of course, the day ended uh, hearing from uh, the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Mike Gilday. Uh, and one of the fascinating things that Admiral Gilday said, uh, maybe to start there, uh, was uh, that the Chinese battle force is larger, that it is highly a highly capable all-domain uh, force, uh, and uh, you know certainly pressed uh, forward his concept of get real, get better. Right? I mean, it's very similar to comments that he made about two years ago. Walk us through what were the most interesting things you heard uh, from from leadership, because Admiral Kitchener had a plan, Admiral Schleiss uh, and General Odom did a very very good job on requirements on what the battle force needs. But what were the things that jumped out at you over the course of this uh, this first day of uh, SNA? Well, you know, so Vago, I think one of the things that jumped out was this recognition that we need to think about fighting differently. Um, yeah, you know, the, the requirements discussion got at a uh, need to maybe move away from some of our traditional approaches to dealing with uh, problems, uh, you know, like traditional approaches to missile defense, traditional approaches to strike, uh, thinking about uh, moving towards the use of, you know, more passive, multi-static. It was sort of implied by some of the discussion there. Um, I, I think a uh, new concept is something that uh, Kitchener brought up, you know, needing to try to come up with some innovative ways to fight that are different than you know, kind of the standard approaches. Uh, and to, to CNO's point, he's talking to, he's building up the Chinese threat, you know, which is obviously the correct assessment um, and, and highlighting how, you know, we need to get real, which meaning we need to start really embracing uh, some changes, you know, to how we think about uh, operating against the Chinese Navy, because uh, the way we did it uh, in the past, the way we've, we've traditionally planned to do it, um, which we sort of carry over from the Cold War in a lot of ways, isn't going to cut it uh, against the PLAN. So the, the recognition of the need to change was there, which is uh, different than past SNAs, which, you know, the SNA tends to be, a, it's, a, it's a community that's relatively uh, traditional minded and, and it does not embrace you know, robust and revolutionary change. This is like the you know, inklings of something in the background that's happening, I believe, in the surface force. Um, I, I, I have to give a shout out to the team who put it together. Uh, uh, Bill Erickson, uh, Julie Howard, of course, right. It was good to, to hear them lauded. Yep. And of course, uh, Vice Admiral Hunt did a terrific job as a, as a moderator and asked some very, very thoughtful questions over the course of the day as well. He's the SNA president yep. um, and his Finn Contieri Marinette Marines president also in his day job. Um, what were the things that uh, stood out at you from Admirals Kitchener and Schleiss and General Odom that you thought was interesting? Well, yeah, so uh, General Odom, uh, obviously law is really important to the uh, Marine Corps. <laughs> uh, the commandants made that point. Uh, they have all made that point that the light amphibious warship um, it is a kind of pivotal capability for them to be able to implement uh, EABO, Expeditionary Advanced Base Operations in the first island chain. Um, and to get that mobility that it allows the Marines to actually try to survive and then you know, deal, do the kinds of effects they're planning to do, which is reconnaissance and counter-reconnaissance. Um, the law has been a very controversial subject within the Pentagon uh, because uh, the Marines want something they can buy in numbers uh, and they're willing to accept risk, meaning it might not be as survivable as a traditional warship. The Navy does not want to pursue something that is not survivable um, because they see themselves as being held accountable for whatever the product is that comes out. They got burned with LCS. 
uh, on a ship that was, you know, theoretically, you know, not built to the same survivability standards. So there's a there's a lot of friction there. And so the Marines are really heavily promoting law as the uh, an essential component of the future force design. And it'll kind of remain to be seen where that goes. But I do see us getting to a, a point where there's going to have to be some hard choices made. And I think in the near term, we'll see LCS employed, you know, to serve as part of that law mission. Uh, and then maybe in the longer term, we end up with some kind of law, but it's probably a more survivable, more expensive platform than the Marine, than the Marines might want. Um, I think from uh, Admiral Schleich, you know, Schleich, the, this, the discussion about requirements was really interesting because they clearly are thinking about DDGX, what should be on DDGX, uh, you know, is it a Death Star that's got lots of missiles and a laser and a big radar? Um, yeah, but it sounds like they're maybe thinking about trades now of, uh, of like, well, what maybe what what needs to get on the boat and maybe what can be afforded to be put on something else or distributed to the rest of fleet. So it sounds like, you know, hypersonics and lasers maybe are high priorities, but maybe large capacities of, of Tomahawk type missiles are not as high a priority. Um, uh, so that was an interesting discussion because it implies a different way of viewing the fleet as a much more distributed force um, that's going to rely on uh, aggregating fires from multiple locations as opposed to each ship kind of fighting, you know, being able to fight on its own uh, alone and unafraid. This is already a long show, but I have to ask you this question about hypersonic weapons. The CNO talked about the partnership between the Army and the Navy uh, to develop a new generation mm -hmm. of common long-range hypersonic weapon. Uh, students in at the Naval Postgraduate School uh, in Monterey put this paper out, hey, that at $45 million, uh, these weapons really do uh, make sense. Do they make sense ultimately no. <laughs> at, at a cost point that high? Okay. No, they don't. And uh, and I've been somewhat critical of the hypersonics effort uh, for this reason is that you're talking about a weapon that, you know, that estimate is pretty close to what I, I've found as well. Um, and uh, if you think about it, um, you, you can generally, you know, get to a target like a Blue Yang 3 or maybe a defended surface or rather air defense site by throwing, you know, a dozen tomahawks at it, or maybe even a couple dozen uh, in a salvo, um, it, structured along with some maybe electronic warfare systems. That combination of, of weapons is gonna cost you like half of what it would cost to launch one hypersonic weapon that you hope will get through, you know, which has a higher probability of, of reaching its target. It's just, so it's, it's still, you know, from a Navy perspective, from a, you know, expeditionary force perspective, hypersonic weapons still don't quite make it in terms of the business case. They make a great sense if you're, you know, a land power that's able to, you know, park a bunch of them on shore and then use them to attack moving targets at sea. But for a force that's expeditionary, that has to carry everything around with it, um, these huge weapons that cost a lot of money and then you know, are relatively immobile um, don't really help you that much. Um, they, they work if they're truly game-changing and used against the right kind of targets in the right, right. kinds of ways. Uh, and kudos to the students for uh, the paper, right? I mean, I don't want to put it down because yeah. ultimately I think it's great that they thought through the problem and putting non-traditional weapons on non-traditional platforms. Absolutely. And that kind of operations research is what you know kind of illuminates, like you said, there's some target sets where that probably is a, reason, a reasonable trade-off, right? There's going to be targets where I just can't get, you know, two dozen tomahawks on it, and, and we need to have something that can go in quickly and do it with one shot. So the hypersonic weapons ends up being the, the worthwhile investment. Brian, so many other things I uh, want to discuss with you, but it'll have to wait. Uh, thanks for, so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it, and uh, can't wait to have you back on soon. Thanks, Vago. Great to be here, and, and uh, talk to you later. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. 
Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.